Chapter 14 of John Dean of Toronto. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. John Dean of Toronto, a comedy of Whitehall by Herbert George Jenkins. Chapter 14. The Hue and Cry. The late editions of the evening papers contained no mention of the disappearance of John Dean. For one thing, much valuable time had been lost owing to the attitude of Sir Leicester Grain. For another, Malcolm Sage had decided to make a great display in the morning papers. All that afternoon, Department Z was feverishly busy. Photographs of John Dean had to be duplicated, and the story distributed through the press bureau in order that it might possess an official character. On the morning following the discovery of John Dean's disappearance, the British public was startled at its breakfast table by an offer of £10,000 reward for details that would lead to the discovery of the whereabouts of one John Dean a citizen of Toronto, Canada, who had last been seen at 6 p.m. on the previous Monday outside his offices in Waterloo Place. The notice drawn up by Department Z ran, Missing, £10,000 reward. Where is John Dean of Toronto? On Monday at 6 p.m., Mr. John Dean, the well-known Canadian inventor and engineer of Toronto, left his offices in Waterloo Place after bidding his secretary good night. Since then, a shroud of mystery seems to have enveloped his movements. His secretary becomes alarmed. His secretary, Miss Dorothy West, arrived at the office at the usual time on Tuesday morning. Mr. Dean was most punctual in his habits, invariably reaching his office a few minutes after nine. Miss West waited until two o'clock, then, fearing that he might be ill, she rang through to the Ritston Hotel, where Mr. Dean was staying. To her surprise, she was informed that he had not returned to his hotel the night before. Where is John Dean of Toronto? Miss West immediately got into communication with the head of a certain government department with which Mr. Dean was associated, but nothing was known of his whereabouts. The authorities have reason to believe that Mr. Dean has been spirited away by some organization that has a special object in view. Is it foul play? A reward of £10,000 will be paid to anyone who will give such information as will lead directly to the discovery of Mr. John Dean's whereabouts. It may be added that Mr. Dean is a distinguished engineer and inventor, and it is the duty of every citizen of the British Empire to endeavor to assist the authorities in tracing the missing man. This is what he is like. The following is a description of Mr. John Dean. Height, 5 feet, 5 inches clean-shaven with gray eyes and a determined expression invariably carried a cigar in his mouth very frequently unlighted has a peculiar habit of twisting and twirling the cigar in his mouth thick-set with keen rather jerky movements and a habit of looking at people suddenly and piercingly a square jaw and tightly closed lips when last seen was wearing a dark gray tweed suit trilby hat dark blue tie and brown boots spoke with a marked canadian accent 
All communication should be addressed to Scotland Yard, S.W. In addition to the foregoing semi-official particulars, there followed much information that had been gleaned by various reporters. Most of the papers gave a leader, and several hinted at the hidden hand, urging that this new outrage obviously pointed to the necessity for the internment of all aliens. Great emphasis was laid upon the importance of tracing the present whereabouts of John Dean of Toronto, and anyone who had seen a man at all answering to his description was called upon to communicate with Scotland Yard. The afternoon papers contained practically the same information, but elaborated and adorned. Several hinted at the fact that John Dean had come to England with a new invention of great importance, and that he had disappeared just on the eve of the fruition of his schemes, with the result that everything was at a standstill. In support of this theory, the writers pointed to the amount of the reward. Ten thousand pounds would not have been offered, they argued, unless there were good reasons for it. One paper went so far as to suggest that the government itself was offering the reward, although in its next issue it apologized for and contradicted the statement. This was a little stroke of Malcolm Sage's. Dorothy was besieged by interviews, until at last she was forced to refrain from answering the succession of knocks at the outer door. Her head was in a whirl. The prevailing topic of conversation was the disappearance of John Dean. Everybody was asking why such a reward had been offered. Shoals of letters descended upon Scotland Yard. Hundreds of callers lined up in a queue, waiting their turn to be interviewed. Telegrams rained in from the provinces. Apparently, John Dean had been seen in places as far distant as St. Andrews and Bournemouth, Aberystwyth, and King's Lynn. He had been observed in conversation with men, women, and children, some of harmless, some of sinister appearance. He had been seen in trains, buses, trams, and cars. He had been seen perturbed and calm, hastening and loitering, in uniform and in mufti. Scotland Yard was almost out of its mind, and the officer in charge of the John Dean investigation rang through to Malcolm Sage, demanding what the funny Peter he was to do with the enormous correspondence. And the bewildering queue that already stretched along the embankment halfway to Charing Cross Railway Bridge. Burn the telegrams and letters, and tell the queue to write, was Sage's laconic response. As he put up the receiver, whereat the officer had sworn heavily into the mouthpiece of the instrument. The chief commissioner was particularly annoyed because all his own correspondence had been engulfed in the epistolary flood and he was expecting a letter from his wife telling him where to meet her on the following day on her return from a motor tour those who knew lady rail understood the chief commissioner's anxiety all day long scotland yard worked in a conscientious endeavor to sift the mass of evidence that streamed in upon it from all parts of the kingdom some of the stories to which weary but patient officials listened were grotesque in the extreme as the chief expressed it, half the idiots and all the damned fools in the country are descending upon us. The callers were interesting as studies in obtuseness and optimism, but they were as nothing to the telegrams. One man wired from St. Andrews that he was tracking a strange man round the golf course. Would Scotland Yard telegraph a warrant for his arrest? Another inquired if the reward would be in cash or war bonds. 
and if the government guaranteed the money. This man telegraphed from Aberdeen. Several asked for railway warrants to London that they might lay certain facts before the authorities. Scores telegraphed for photographs, as the pictures in the papers were indistinct. One lady telegraphed from Suffolk that a man with a beard identical with that worn by John Dean in the picture in the daily photo had that day come to her door begging. The telegrams were, however, nothing to the letters that followed them. The lady who had telegraphed about a bearded John Dean wrote to apologize for her mistake, explaining it by saying that the paper boy must have accidentally rubbed the paper before delivering it. She was not to be denied, however, and went on to say that she thought the picture strangely like the man who had begged of her. Did Scotland Yard think that John Dean had disguised himself with a false beard? Some correspondents wrote bitterly, censuring the government for not interning all aliens, for allowing John Dean out of its sight, for an imperialistic policy, for plunging the country into war, for offering the reward and for a thousand and one other irrelevant things. The one thing that no one did was to supply any information that would be remotely useful to the authorities in tracing the missing man. People waited eagerly for the morrow's papers. They contained another surprise, this time in the form of a two-column advertisement offering £20,000 for information that would lead to the discovery of the whereabouts of John Dean. Clearly, somebody was determined that John Dean should be found. When Mr. Llewellyn John opened the first morning paper he picked up from the pile awaiting him, he gasped. Himself a great believer in the possibilities of the press, he felt, nevertheless, that Department Z was overdoing things, and he telephoned for its chief and Malcolm Sage to call upon him at ten o'clock. At two minutes to ten, the two presented themselves at number 110 Downing Street, and were immediately shown into the presence of the Prime Minister. "'Has it struck you,' asked Mr. Llewellyn John, indicating one of the advertisements, "'that questions will be asked in the House as to whether or no the government is offering these large rewards?' "'I should think it highly probable, sir,' was Sage's response. "'And what are we to say?' demanded Mr. Llewellyn John." He was a keen politician, and saw that the situation might be fraught with considerable difficulties. "'Acknowledge that they are, sir,' was the response. "'Acknowledge it!' cried Mr. Llewellyn John. "'Certainly, sir.' "'Mr. Sage,' said Mr. Llewellyn John severely, "'you do not appear to appreciate that this may seriously compromise the government.' Then, turning to Colonel Walton, he continued, "'Hitherto you have been given a free hand.' Now, I must ask you to explain why you are offering these large rewards. You first of all suggested £1,000, raising daily from £1,000 to £10,000. In two days it has amounted to £20,000. I won't rise any higher, sir. It has reached the limit. That is not the point, said Mr. Llewellyn John. I want to know why it is that you are advertising to Germany that we want John Dean. It is an obvious confession of weakness. He made a quick, nervous movement with his right hand. He was far from easy in his mind. Malcolm Sage continued to examine his fingernails with great intentness. Seeing that he made no indication of replying, Mr. Llewellyn John continued, I'm afraid that this cannot go on. There was a suggestion of irritability in his voice. 
"'Then have it stopped, sir,' said Sage calmly, still intent upon the fingernails of his right hand. "'The mischief is done,' said Mr. Llewellyn John. "'What is at the back of your mind, Sage?' he demanded. "'I'm working on a hypothesis, sir,' was the reply. "'I think I'm right. In fact, I'm convinced of it. But until I know for certain, I must keep my theories to myself.' If you wish it, I'll tell you what I actually know, but I make it a rule never to air theories. Mr. Llewellyn John smiled. Well, tell me what you actually know, then, he said. When Mr. Dean left his office at three minutes past six on Monday evening, he stood for nearly a minute, as if making up his mind in what direction to go. Just as he was about to turn and walk up Regent Street, a taxi crawled past him. The driver spoke to him, and John Dean got in and drove away. "'Kidnapped!' exclaimed Mr. Llewellyn John. Malcolm Sage shrugged his shoulders. "'In which direction did he drive?' inquired Mr. Llewellyn John eagerly. "'Along Pell-Mell, sir,' was the reply. "'Colonel Walton told you what happened?' Mr. Llewellyn John nodded. "'And have you informed the police?' he asked. Malcolm Sage shook his head. "'Why?' inquired Mr. Llewellyn John eagerly. "'If my theory is right,' said Sage, "'it's unnecessary. "'If my theory's wrong, it's useless. "'Believe me, sir, our best course is to continue to boom John Dean's disappearance for all we are worth.' "'But the destroyer!' exclaimed Mr. Llewellyn John excitedly. "'You know the condition, sir, that the island of Auchinleck was to be left severely alone for four months.' "'Do you imagine that Dean slipped off to the north to trick the Germans?' "'That wouldn't trick them, sir,' said Malcolm Sage quietly. "'John Dean would never have been allowed to reach Auchinleck alive. "'That was settled. "'I may add that I have every reason to believe "'that the taxi and its occupant did not go fifty miles from London.' "'And that he is a prisoner?' Mr. Llewellyn Johns jumped from his chair. "'Malcolm Sage inclined his head in the affirmative.' "'Good heavens!' exclaimed Mr. Llewellyn John. "'We must—' "'Depend entirely upon the advertisements,' said Sage, rising. "'You will, of course, regard this as strictly confidential, and to be told to no one. I cannot tell you how important it is.' There was an unaccustomed note of seriousness in Sage's voice, which did not fail to impress Mr. Llewellyn John. "'But the questions in the house as to why we are offering this reward?' persisted Mr. Llewellyn John. "'What reply are we to make?' "'You might fall back on the old cliché, sir. "'Wait and see.' Mr. Llewellyn John smiled. "'That phrase,' continued Sage, "'was a great asset to one party. "'Why should it not be to another?' "'Look at this,' Mr. Llewellyn John held out a slip of paper, "'which Colonel Walton took and read aloud. "'Has the attention of the Home Secretary been drawn to a statement in the Tribune "'to the effect that it is the government that is offering the reward of £10,000 "'for information that will lead to the discovery of the whereabouts of Mr. John Dean of Toronto? "'And if so, can it justify the offer of so large a sum of public money?' "'They haven't lost any time,' remarked Sage quietly. "'They never do.' There was an unaccustomed note of irascibility in Mr. Llewellyn John's voice. "'These questions are a scandal.' "'Except when one happens to be in opposition, sir,' said Sage, apparently absorbed in examining the nails of his left hand. 
Mr. Llewellyn John made no response, and Colonel Walton handed back to him the slip which he tossed upon the table. Well, he demanded, looking from Colonel Walton to Sage, what are we to reply? The answer is in the affirmative, sir, said Malcolm Sage. For a moment Mr. Llewellyn John looked at him, frowning. Then he broke into a smile. That's all very well, Sage, but it's not sufficient. If I may venture a suggestion, began Sage. Do, do, that's why I sent for you, both, he added, as if in deference to Colonel Walton. I would say that for reasons not unconnected with the prosecution of the war, the discovery of Mr. John Dean's whereabouts is imperative. But that would be giving us away more than ever. I think it would be desirable to temporize, said Sage. Mr. Llewellyn John made a movement of impatience. You might reply that it is not in the public interest to answer the question, continued Sage. But that would be tantamount to acknowledging that we are offering the reward, said Mr. Llewellyn John, with a suspicion of irritation in his voice. Malcolm Sage looked at him steadily, but without speaking. There will inevitably be other questions arising out of this, continued Mr. Llewellyn John. I was going to suggest, sir, that if we could arrange for some newspaper to make a definite statement that the government is offering the reward, we could prosecute it under D.O.R.A. For fully a minute, Mr. Llewellyn John gazed at Malcolm Sage, as if not quite sure of his sanity. But, he began, and then broke off, looking helplessly across at Colonel Walton. Of course, sir, I'll relinquish the inquiry, if you wish it. "'This is not the time to talk of relinquishing anything, Sage,' said Mr. Llewellyn John, with some asperity in his tone. "'What I want to know is what all this means.' "'That's exactly what I'm endeavouring to discover,' said Sage evenly. "'If I were a stage detective, I should be down on my knees smelling your carpet, or examining pell-mell with a strong lens. But I'm not.' I never carry a magnifying glass, and I know nothing about fingerprints. The solving of mysteries, like the detection of crime, is invariably due to a mistake on the part of somebody who ought not to have made a mistake. Then tell me how far you have got, Mr. Llewellyn John glanced across to Colonel Walton, and was conscious of a slight knitting of his brows. Then he looked back again at Malcolm Sage, who for some moments remained silent. "'If you were uncertain of my sanity, sir,' said Sage quietly, "'would you discuss the matter with others? "'Or would you first assure yourself of the accuracy of your suspicion?' "'He looked up suddenly, straight into Mr. Llewellyn John's eyes. "'We all know you are hopelessly and irretrievably mad, Sage,' "'said Mr. Llewellyn John, with a smile. "'When I know definitely what has become of John Dean, "'I'll tell you, sir,' said Sage.' I'm not spectacular, sir. I can't deduce bigamy from a bootlace, or murder from a meringue. I can tell you this, however. He paused, and both his listeners leaned forward eagerly, that if my hypothesis is correct, the policy to pursue is to magnify the importance of John Dean's disappearance. Incidentally, he added, it might result in Mr. John Dean revising his opinion of the incapacity of British officialdom. Then you refuse to tell me. It would be highly injudicious on my part to tell you of a mere suspicion which might, 
Malcolm Sage lifted his eye from the nail of his left thumb and looked straight at Mr. Llewellyn John, which might dictate your policy, sir. But the time we are wasting, protested Mr. Llewellyn John, rising and pacing up and down impatiently. Nothing is lost that's wrought with tears, sir, was the enigmatical response. Sage, said Mr. Llewellyn John, as he shook hands with Malcolm Sage, you're the most pig-headed official in the British Empire. Chapeldale can be tiresome, but you're nothing short of an inconvenience. Mind, Walton, he continued, turning to the chief of Department Z, I shall hold you responsible for Sage. If he lets me down over this, Dean business, I shall lose faith in Department Z. The smile that accompanied his words, however, robbed them of any sting they might have contained. "'Why don't you take the skipper into your confidence, Sage?' inquired Walton, as they walked towards the Duke of York's steps. "'Vanity, chief! Sheer vanity!' was the response. "'We have never failed him yet, and if I started barking up the wrong tree, he'd never again have confidence in Department Z.' I suppose, he added irrelevantly, that some day we shall be taken over altogether by the colonies. It would not be a bad thing for the British Empire, either. John Dean might be our first president. There was one man who was deeply thankful for the disappearance of John Dean. Mr. Blair went about as if he had received a new lease of life. He became almost sprightly in his demeanor, and no longer looked up apprehensively when the door of his room opened. Sir Bridgman North commented on the circumstance to Sir Leicester Grain, and, as he passed through Mr. Blair's room, openly taxed him with being responsible for the kidnapping of John Dean. Mr. Blair smiled a little wearily, for to him John Dean was no matter for joking. When Mr. McShane's question with regard to the disappearance of John Dean came up for answer, the Home Secretary replied that, for the present at least, it was not in the public interest to give the information required. "'That's tantamount to an acknowledgment,' cried Mr. McShane, springing to his feet. "'It's a scandal that public money—' He got no further, as at this point he was called to order by the Speaker. It was clear that the House was not satisfied— in the lobbies, Mr. McShane's question and the answer given were discussed to an extent out of all proportion to their apparent importance. The feeling seemed to be that if John Dean were of such value to the government, he should have been guarded with a care that would have prevented the possibility of his disappearance. If, on the other hand, the government had no interest in the enormous reward offered for information concerning him, then a statement to that effect should have been made. Whatever the facts, the government was obviously in the wrong. That was the general impression. The next day, several newspapers commented very strongly upon the incident. There seemed to be a determination on the part of the press to make an affaire Jean Dean out of the Canadian's disappearance. The government was attacked for adopting German bureaucratic methods. A dark age of bureaucracy is settling down upon the country, said the morning age. The real danger of Prussianism is not military, but bureaucratic. The government was called upon to lift the curtain of mystery with which it had surrounded itself. If it were responsible for the rewards offered, then let it say so. If, however, these rewards were in no way connected with the government, then a denial should immediately be made. 
At the moment, everybody regarded the government as responsible for the tremendous press campaign resulting from John Dean's disappearance. Malcolm Sage read the newspapers with obvious relish. Mr. Llewellyn John, on the other hand, frowned heavily at finding his administration attacked. The Home Secretary rang up the Deputy Commissioner at Scotland Yard, telling him that something must be done, and the Deputy Commissioner had replied with some heat that if the Home Secretary would step across to the Yard, he would see what actually was being done. He further intimated that the whole work of the Yard had been disorganized. The Prime Minister sent over for Colonel Walton. "'Look here, Walton,' he cried, as the Chief of Department Z entered the room. This affair is getting rather out of hand, and it looks dangerous. You've seen the papers? Colonel Walton nodded. He was a man to whom words came with difficulty. Well, I don't like the look of it, continued Mr. Llewellyn John. Sir Roger has just rung through that he's been urging Scotland Yard to greater efforts. They can do no harm, remarked Colonel Walton dryly. I want Sage to go round and see the Deputy Commissioner. I doubt if he'll do it, was the grim response. Not do it, cried Mr. Llewellyn John, with a note of anger in his voice. In fact, I'm quite sure he won't. If you tell him that those are my instructions, began Mr. Llewellyn John. It's no use, sir. He'll merely resign. He's an independent as an American boot boy. Mr. Llewellyn John flopped down in a chair and sat gazing at Colonel Walton. "'But he's got us into this muddle,' he began. "'I've never known Sage's judgment at fault yet,' replied Colonel Walton. "'Then you advise?' began Mr. Llewellyn John. "'I never venture to advise,' was the reply. "'Now look here, Walton,' said Mr. Llewellyn John, persuasively. "'This is a very serious matter. "'It has already been magnified out of all proportion to its actual importance. "'I want to know what you would do if you were in my place.' "'Exactly as Sage advises,' was the terse response. "'Why, you're as bad as he is,' grumbled Mr. Llewellyn John. "'Still, I suppose I must do as you suggest. "'I don't like the look of things, however. "'It's invariably the neglected trifle that wrecks a government.' "'The mysterious disappearance of John Dean "'was made the subject of special consideration "'at a meeting of the War Cabinet.' It was urged that the curious nature of the circumstances exonerated the Prime Minister and the First Lord of the Admiralty from the personal pledge they had given to John Dean, and that it was a matter of vital national importance that the destroyer should be put into commission with the least possible delay. Mr. Llewellyn John looked interrogatingly across at Sir Leicester Grain, who shook his head decisively. "'We have given a personal pledge,' he said, under no circumstances whatever to communicate or endeavor to communicate other than by wireless with the island of Auchinleck for the period of four months from the date of our undertaking. The words under no circumstances whatever admit of only one interpretation. But, protested Sir Roger Flynn, the Home Secretary, Mr. Dean could not have foreseen his own disappearance. Circumstances surely alter the aspect of the case, he urged. If you, Flynn, were to promise under no circumstances to move from this room, then fire or flood would not justify you in breaking that promise, said Sir Leicester with decision. He was notorious for his punctiliousness in matters of personal honor. 
what was possible to the Roman sentry, is imperative with responsible ministers, he added. Mr. Llewellyn John nodded, and made a mental note of the phrase. Besides, continued Sir Lyster, Mr. Dean was particularly emphatic on this point. I recall his saying to the Prime Minister, When I say under no circumstances, I mean under no circumstances. And he went on to expound his interpretation of the phrase. But, persisted Sir Roger, if the majority of the War Cabinet take the opposite view, then you and the Prime Minister would be absolved from your promise. Nothing can absolve a man from his personal pledge, was Sir Leicester's calm retort. He can be outvoted politically, but he has always his alternative resignation. Mr. Llewellyn John looked up quickly. I think, he said, that Grain is right. Nothing can absolve us from our pledge. The point is, said Sir Roger, what is happening at Auchinleck? He fixed an almost accusing eye upon Sir Leicester Grain, who merely shook his head with the air of one who has been asked an insoluble conundrum. Here we are, continued Sir Roger indignantly, with a weapon that would exercise a considerable effect in bringing victory nearer, debarred from using it, because the Prime Minister has given his word, interpolated Sir Leicester quietly. Sir Roger glared at him. Death nullifies a contract of this description, retorted Sir Roger. But the Prime Minister is not yet dead, said Sir Leicester dryly. Mr. Llewellyn John started slightly. He did not like these references to death and resignation. "'In law,' began Sir Roger. "'This is not a matter of law, but of a private promise,' Sir Leicester was insistent. "'I think, gentlemen, you are looking at it from different points of view,' interrupted Mr. Llewellyn John with a tactful smile. "'Let us hope that Mr. John Dean will be found.' If it can be proved he is dead, then we shall be fully justified in sending to Auchinleck, acquainting his second-in-command with what has happened, and instructing him to assume command of the destroyer in accordance with Mr. Dean's wishes. The matter was then dropped, although it was clear that the members of the War Cabinet were not at one on the subject either of John Dean or his disappearance. The Home Secretary promised personally to urge the police to greater efforts. Slowly and with infinite labor, Scotland Yard sifted the enormous volume of evidence that poured in upon it, proving conclusively that John Dean had been seen in every part of the United Kingdom, not to mention a number of places on the continent. Police officers swore and perspired as they strove to grapple with this enormous problem. Night and day they worked with the frenzy of despair. They cursed the war. They cursed the colonies. They cursed John Dean. Why had he not stayed in Toronto and disappeared there, if he must disappear anywhere? Why had he come to London to drive to desperation an already overworked department? One thing that the police found particularly embarrassing was that constables were consistently being called upon, by enthusiastic and excited members of the public, to arrest inoffensive citizens on the suspicion of their being John Dean of Toronto. In some instances, the constables would point out that no resemblance existed, but the invariable reply was that the object of suspicion was disguised. All these false scents were duly reported to headquarters through the local police stations, with no other result than to increase the sultriness of the atmosphere at Scotland Yard. 
An elaborate description of John Dean was sent to every coroner and mortuary attendant in the country. The river police were advised to keep a sharp lookout for floating bodies. In its heart of hearts, Scotland Yard yearned to discover proof of the death of John Dean, whilst all the time it worked steadily through the deluge of correspondence, and listened patiently to the testimonies of the avaricious optimists who were convinced that they, and they alone, could supply the necessary information that would lead to the discovery of the whereabouts of John Dean and transfer to themselves the not inconsiderable sum of twenty thousand pounds. If ever another blighter comes from Toronto, remarked Detective Inspector Cravat, as he mopped his brow, it would be worth while for the yard to subscribe twenty thousand pounds for him to disappear quietly. Having thus relieved his feelings, he plunged once more into the opening of letters, letters that convinced him that the whole population of Great Britain and Ireland had gone suddenly mad. Articles appeared in many of the German newspapers upon the subject of the mysterious disappearance of John Dean. A great point was made of the fact that he was an inventor, and was known to be in close touch with the British war chiefs. Emphasis was laid upon the extraordinary efforts being made to discover his whereabouts. It is inconceivable, said the Kolnisch Zeitung, that the anxiety of the relatives of the missing man could have prompted them to offer a reward of 400,000 marks for news of his whereabouts, and that within two days of his disappearance, imagine a private citizen in Germany being absent from home for two days, and his friends offering this colossal reward for news of him. What would be said? The writer went on to point out that behind this almost hysterical anxiety of the English to find John Dean lay a mystery that, whatever its solution might be, was certainly not detrimental to German interests. The Varwarts hinted darkly at something more than John Dean having disappeared, a something that was so embarrassing the British authorities as to be likely to have a very serious influence upon the conduct of the war. The Berliner Tagleblatt openly stated that the British Admiralty was offering the reward, and left its readers to draw their own conclusions. Victory, it concluded, is not always won with machine guns and high explosives. Fitness to win means something more than well-trained battalions and valiant soldiers. It means a perfect organization in every department of the great game of war. Violence, bluff and intrigue. The country, with the best balanced machinery, was a country that would win because it was fit to win. In Germany, where everybody does everything at the top of his voice, italics are very popular. And excitable people think and live italics, and a daily newspaper either reflects its public or ceases to be. With great tact, the Paris papers limited themselves to the news element in John Dean's disappearance reproducing his portrait with the details translated from the London dailies. The neutral press was frankly puzzled. Those favorable to Germany saw in this incident a presage of victory for the fatherland, whilst the pro-allies journals hinted at the fact that someone had blundered in giving such publicity to an event that should have been regarded as a subject for the consideration of the war cabinet rather than for the daily press. End of chapter 14. Recording by William Tomko.